Okay, so first of all, I don't think that a writer has a voice. I think okay. a writer has voices, you know, and 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 different uh, projects will solicit different voices. Hello, my prosers. I promised that I would get back to you, and I am. I'm here with the second edition of Phil Lopez's great interview. I hope you had a chance to listen to the first one. If not, please go do so. That is the cat lady spooky saying um, hello to all you prosers. I want to thank the people who contributed to um, the Behind the Pros campaign. Um, we are going to be going on a modified schedule. You might not see us publishing on uh, iTunes as frequently. And by us, I mean me and the people in my head. And uh, But I'm going to try to maybe do some stuff on YouTube with um, some of our interviews. I do have one coming up that I wanted to do with Andrew Bombeck. You may remember him from uh, the first year of Behind the Pros. He has a new book out now called Doctor, and I did read it like on, in August, and I have all these notes. So I definitely do want to get that interview to you. So make sure you are on the email list. Once again, thank you for listening, and please enjoy Phil Lopate. Out of the books that you've written, is there a book that you feel you've learned the most about yourself as a writer from? Hmm. Um, there certainly are different challenges, of, uh, and, and, and I've learned different things. When I wrote the book Waterfront, uh, it seemed like an enormous job, an enormous challenge. I was trying to write something about New York City uh, uh, and to approach the water, its waterfront, its Manhattan waterfront, as one way of talking about a lot of different aspects of, of, of the city's life and the city's history. Um, and I had to do a lot of research. Uh, and at first, when I, was, when I was working with all this research, you know, I was, I was overwhelmed by by the voices of the experts who knew so much more than I did. And I would quote them at great length, and, you know, people who read it would say, no, we've got to get back to your voice. Regardless of how much they know, you're going to have to uh, put this through a filter and make it your own, you know. So I had to learn, A, how to do a tremendous amount of research, and B, how to uh, transmute it into something of my own voice. This was a big departure for me because earlier I had written so much about my own experience, and uh, and an editor once said to me, Lopet, your idea of a good assignment is where you never have to leave the house, you know. <laughs> but here I was leaving the house all the time, and I was uh, I was leaving my comfort zone and going into areas like engineering and marine biology that I knew almost nothing about, and geology and so on. So that was a big challenge. Um, in the book I wrote about Susan Sontag, uh, I, I, that was a, like a, a preparation for the book about my mother because it was a one-on-one -on -one with a woman and, and a woman who had tremendous, who was tremendously respected and I was, I was asked to write a kind of a book-length meditation on her, not a biography. And um, again, I had to ask myself when I was rereading her, uh, do I agree with this? Yes. Next paragraph. I don't agree with that next paragraph. So I had to keep uh, working through my own um, uh, contradictory uh, judgments of her, you know. Um, and I knew that whatever I wrote, you know, there were going to be 
uh, fans of Sontag and thought, who is this pipsqueak daring to say <laughs> critical things about Sontag? I didn't want it to take her down. I didn't want to do a hatchet job. I still respected her a lot, but I also, you know, there were there were places where we parted company. Um, so that was a that was a very that was a very challenging uh, kind of intellectual and also emotional uh, uh, project in which I also was doing, similarly to the book about my mother, going through history and realizing. Um, what was happening in the 1960s, what was happening in the 1970s, what was happening in the 1980s, and she was reflecting all of it through the positions she was taking, which were changing from year to year. And I was going through those same uh, uh, experiences at a, at a younger age. So I had to kind of uh, look at, look at, at, the, at our common history that we shared. Um, when, I, when I wrote um, my first... Uh, uh, commercial book, which was um, Being with Children. Um, I didn't realize when I was writing Being with Children that I was really writing a collection of essays, but I thought I was just writing uh, a book about my experiences working with kids uh, as, a, as a writer in the schools. And again, I had to um, divide things into chapters. Uh, I had to develop a, a, a plausible voice on the page that people could trust. Uh, so I, I, I certainly learned a lot from that, you know, and I'm still learning. Now I'm doing an anthology again of the American essay, and, and I'm reading everything I can, uh, reading through whole libraries, and it's, it's, it, it's thrilling to be able to learn much more, you know, than mm -hmm. I knew in the form. Hmm. That was actually one of my questions with everything that you know. What, what do you still, is there something, what do you still want to master or is there anything that you're like, oh, I haven't done this yet, or I would like to... Well, nobody's ever going to read all the all the, the good writing yeah. that there is, you know. Uh, Wallace Stevens once said, there's so much great writing that it's, just, it's, it's, it's a wonder we don't get killed by it, you know, under yeah. this avalanche. Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, I'm now trying to read um, so many people, fill in the gaps, so many... So many writers who I know, who I know their names of, but now I'm actually reading them. Mm -hmm. um, and also reading people who I formerly disliked and seeing if I could understand what was in them, you know. Uh, so there's so much, there's so much to learn. And for me, a new book is an opportunity to learn. Uh, you know, I, I, I like these research projects. Um, so like Waterfront, I like the opportunity to learn something, or the Sontag book, the opportunity to learn something. Um, each each new book is a new is a new opportunity to learn. Uh, I don't want to be the one who who knows everything and is you know uh, handing down the law. I want to be able to learn. Mm -hmm. Speaking of learning, um, this reminds me of something that I had wanted to ask you about. In and I'm mixing the books now, portrait in my head, but I think this is in the mother my mother a mother's tale where you're describing the picture. There's a there's an essay somewhere in one of those two books yeah. you write about describing a picture, and yeah. then you pause and you say, "I tell my students that they should not do this," <laughs> yes, exactly. and, then, and then you go on yeah. and do it. Yes. So for all the students out there that <laughs> Dr. Lopez said, uh, "Don't do this," I would like to ask you what? why, why you do you do. think it's appropriate to do it at that particular time in your book, and why it worked for you, and why you advise against it. I, I, I advise against uh, 
for instance, beginning a piece by describing uh, a photograph of your family, let's say, because usually the writer brings more emotion to it than the, than the reader can feel. So the writer is getting all choked up, but you know you're thinking what you know, uh, and 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 it, and it tends to be sort of generic. You know, it's always the same thing when people describe photographs. Uh, so they, they 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 think more is coming across than is really coming across. Um, and um, so I'm aware of that kind of uh, potential for sentimentality, for for kind of like um, you're talking uh, to to a limited group, really, but other people can't feel that. Um, and and so everything has to be prepared in terms of uh, the emotions of the readers. Like you know, you can't you can't introduce a character and kill that character off on page two and expect the reader to care very much. You have to build up something, you know. So. Um, so in this case, I felt like I had built up enough and I could get away with it, and also I could warn the reader against any potential, you know, watch out and see if this writer is going to get sentimental at this point. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, and then it's funny because I read, I went back and read it again to see, like, what, is he, what did he say here? Right. <laughs> just anything sentimental. Um, just, I want to touch back on something you mentioned, plausible voice. Yes. And yeah. what would you... Perhaps it might be say might be easier to ask you what voice isn't for someone who's trying to figure out what their voice is. What should they not be looking at? Okay, so first of all, I don't think that a writer has a voice. I okay. think a writer has voices, you know, mm -hmm. and 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 different uh, projects will solicit different voices. Um, if I'm writing a, a if I'm writing a an essay for the New York Review of Books, I know i got to get a little bit more formal um, and, 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 and be aware of, uh, of, 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 of the vocabulary that I use and such. such. Um, if I'm writing um, for a, a film magazine, let's say, I, I could probably assume that the readers are going to be uh, knowledgeable about movies. From writing for general interests, I can't always assume that. So, so some of so some of it has to do with the the way you uh, you parlay information. Mm. But you know, you have to assume that the reader knows something. You can't say the Spanish painter Picasso. We have to assume that at least a base a baseline of information. Uh, so, I think that what makes for a plausible voice. Uh, and maybe this will answer the question of what makes for an impl implausible <laughs> voice. What makes for a plausible voice is in part uh, that the reader trusts this person is leveling with him or her. Um, and part, part of leveling is admitting to flaws, admitting to mistakes, uh, admitting to human uh, uh, pride, greed, whatever, you know. Um, so some of that sense of... Um, of complicity in the world's stock of sorrow is something that uh, that will make them a, uh, a reader more plausible. Um, what ma what makes a reader more plausible also is um, not to be so self righteous, not to be so locked into a self righteous position, but to be to be able to see that um, uh, to be able to see the other person's side. Sometimes, you know, if you just if you were just um, um, writing about how you were uh, done wrong or prejudiced against or victimized or something like that, um, 
the reader may, may resist you even if it's completely true what you're saying. In order to get the reader on your side, you may have to, to show that you are not such a naive. Mm. You know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so partly what makes a, 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 a writer's voice plausible is what I would call worldliness, you know, that you're not um, shocked or dismayed by things that you should know or characteristic patterns among people, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, for instance, if you're, if you're writing about, uh, about an instance of adultery, you know, you can't say, oh, my God, I can't believe it. This, this, this husband cheated on his wife. You know you, say, you know, you have to say, well, yes, you know, this did happen. Yeah. And you know it does, does, mm-hmm. does happen sometimes. Mm-hmm. And that goes for all the, the, the aspects of, that can, can demonstrate a kind of worldliness. Sometimes we demonstrate worldliness uh, with little tricks like just saying, of course we know that, X, you know. Or you anticipate that the reader, uh, you can't, you can't, you can't announce something that's that's a platitude or that everyone knows. You have to, you want to introduce it, but you want to show that you know that everybody knows it. Mm-hmm. That's all part of what makes for plausible voices, anticipating the reader, mm-hmm. and anticipating the reader's knowledge. Mm-hmm. What is a technique that you learned that greatly helped your editing process, and how does it work? Um, I think I think a technique that I've learned is just um, how to make a sentence bounce. You know, um, uh, Isaac Babel once said that a, 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 a period should come with the force of a bullet. Uh, some of my sentences don't come with the force of a bullet, and a lot of Henry James's sentences, you know, it's a bullet that goes through a lot of walls before it lands. <laughs> <laughs> so. I, I I have studied different writers' sentences. Uh, for instance, James Baldwin has this fascinating way of um, interpolating a clause before he gets to the end of the sentence. He slows you up with a speed bump, let's say. Um, so um, I've looked at people's sentences, and, and, and for me, uh, in rewriting, uh, I'll often take... Uh, I'll often either condense a sentence or, or rearrange it, you know, take one, one part of it and putting it uh, at another part, you know. And so that whole way of, 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 of working with a, uh, with a sentence, um, like a kind of a, a pretzel where the dough is still movable, you know, mm-hmm. uh, that, 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 is, that is something that, that intrigues me a lot. Um, I think with my students sometimes... Um, they they write well for a while and then then suddenly it's gone you know uh, they don't realize that they can still get in there uh, in this very mechanic shoemaker way and move stuff around you know so I like to move stuff around mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and sometimes I move whole paragraphs around uh, and just that just that uh, flexibility of syntax uh, is something that 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 definitely uh, is a technique that that that. I didn't have it at the beginning, and it's part of my tool chest now. Mm-hmm. Do you edit on, do you print it out and circle and cut, or do you do this on your computer? Well, you know, I go back a long way, so <laughs> I wrote about six or seven books before there were computers, before I had a computer. <laughs> and I was always uh, uh, writing it out in longhand, typing it up, and, and revising it. To some degree, 
uh, there's a great advantage in that pre-computer way of doing things because um, you you type and retype and retype, and and the more you retype, uh, the closer you get to the inner rhythm of the sentences that you need. You know, because a lot of a lot of writing is really musical. It's really having an ear and thinking. Uh, this sentence would go better if it was this way, you know, if it bounced in a certain way. So um, this is something that's very hard to teach, but you can just alert students to it, which is um, this kind of inner music of prose. Uh, so um, now I'm losing the track of what I was saying. We were talking about the editing on the computer. Oh, yeah. So, then, not- so at the beginning, I was, I was, I was always... Uh, writing longhand and then typing. And now uh, that I have a computer, I basically taught myself to uh, to do the equivalent of, of uh, writing longhand. But I still sometimes uh, start out by writing longhand. Uh, but when I edit, I usually edit directly on the computer. And that's what computers are good for, is editing, you know. Uh, so I can move things around. But I always I always print out. Because a lot of times when you edit, you you go too far, you know? Mm. And so then you have to go back and say, okay, well, that was interesting, but I better go back and because it was something fresher in the original way, you know? Mm. So I always keep drafts, and I can go back, you know? I, 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 don't, trust, uh, I, I don't trust computers because they, uh, they can blow, and, um, and I always want to have something printed out at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Are you at the point where you don't really need another reader right now, or do you always, uh, pre, pre, you know, pre-publication, having somebody, hey, check this out? I, I, I have gone further and further in the direction of not needing another reader, mm-hmm. partly by internalizing the audience and, and, and suspecting what responses are going to be like. However, I then do, um, I then do try it out. On, uh, on some people. It's not always the same people. It's whoever happens to be around at the time. So sometimes it's my wife, sometimes it's my daughter, um, sometimes it's a friend uh, in the neighborhood. Um, and uh, but, but I would say that in general, by the time I show it to somebody, uh, it's pretty much okay. Uh, or it's not going to ever be okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, mm-hmm. but I really do, I really have over the years gotten more and more uh, into uh, taking it as far as I can. The one thing that I do not want to do, I do not want to go to my editor or my agent and say, I'm confused, I don't know what to do, I don't want to cry in front of them, I, I, I don't want to give them that power over me. Mm. You know? I, I just turned to a note here. And this is in Portrait Inside My Head. And we're talking about the personal... You're talking about the weird... I've worked, well, we are talking. You yeah. and me on the page. Yeah. You're talking about the personal essay. Yeah. Um, and then you talk about a woman who um, was advised to dismantle her personal essay collection and restructure it as a memoir. And yeah. she uh, tried to do so for a year and it didn't work. And then I just, I wonder what happened to her. Like, she doesn't give up. She was one of my favorite students. Um, and she was she was an African-American student who was trying to write about um, about depression. And she was, a, she was a really strong personal essayist. 
and and um, and she found an agent. The agent said this should be a memoir, thinking it would be more commercial, of course, than a collection of essays. And that that she struggled and struggled, and and um, and she couldn't make it into a memoir because it really did have the form of being personal essays. A lot of times you can get away with that. Some of what people think of as memoirs are really collections of personal essays. Um, but in this case, um, they all they, they all had this beginning, middle, and end, and it felt like personal essays. And she's still at it. She's still working. Um, and, and um, you know, I'm hoping that this first book is going to be dynamite. Mm-hmm. So, but it, but... But this, but this speaks to the whole problem that uh, I sometimes tell my students, which is um, try to write the book that you want to write instead of, uh, you know, trying to satisfy somebody else. You know, if you write the book that you want to write, uh, then you may find somebody who likes it, and then it will be published. Whereas if you if if you insist on uh, getting a contract first, and 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 then then you may be disappointing the the editor and so on it's it's a problem you know mm-hmm. so um, so try to write the book that you want to write until next time listen learn and write 